for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome to our New Year's Eve service. It's a joy to have all of our campuses under one roof this morning. And it's also a joy to have our online audience joining us today. When I was a child, I spent the majority of my upbringing in a little rural Newfoundland fishing village of about 1,200 people. And I didn't watch a lot of TV because the church parking lot was calling my name. So I was a pastor's kid, and so we lived in a parsonage, which was a home that was right beside the church. And the reason the church parking lot was calling my name is because it was the best place to play road hockey in our town. How many of you kids love playing street hockey or road hockey? That's right, hey, it's the Canadian thing to do. I saw one of my friends put up a post yesterday of, of her boy and, and his friends out in minus 30 playing hockey. And, you know, the hashtag was like, you know, Canadian boys, right? And I just thought, that is brilliant. But I spent a lot of time on this parking lot. And, uh, you know, I was either Matt Sundin or Dougie Gilmore or Mark Messier, Wayne Gretzky. And, you know, my team won so many Stanley Cups over the years um, in my imagination and on that parking lot. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of wonderful memories were created. And um, the only time it stopped, well, it stopped two times during the week. Sunday it had to stop because... The lot was full of cars, and it was hard to play hockey. No, but also I was the pastor's kid, and we went to church like we're doing today. But we also stopped on Saturday evening. Why do you think we weren't playing street hockey on Saturday evening? It wasn't to watch the Tommy Hunter show. Did I just date myself? I probably did. If you remember it, you're probably north of 40 or 35. Um, it was to watch Hockey Night in Canada and watch the real athletes vie for the Stanley Cup. It wasn't just the guys in our imagination. You see, most kids in Newfoundland, or most kids that I knew, had a dream to go to Disneyland. My childhood dream was to one day live in a city that had an NHL team. That's, yeah, I know, I was pretty sheltered, let me tell you. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. In, in 2000, I was about to start my first year of Bible college in Edmonton. And I remember the day before class started, I wasn't sitting in my apartment thinking, wow, I'm so excited to start Bible college. I was sitting there and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm in a city with an NHL team. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. I had to pinch myself. Well, that dream didn't become a reality for a few years because I had a college student budget. Um, but it did finally happen. And when it did happen, I was like a kid in the candy store. Yes, I was that adult that was walking around the arena, mouth wide open. You know, eyes the size of saucers, heart pounding out of my chest. Now, I've matured a little bit since then. And uh, when, I, when I go to games now, that's usually not, um, well, sometimes it is the expression I have on my face, but it's all good. But I've been fortunate enough to go to a few games over the years. And I went to a game a couple of years ago with my uncle. And we were able to sit in row eight, lower bowl, right by the ice. And we were so close to the ice surface. You know, being that close, you feel like you're a part of the game. You feel the intensity of the checks when someone gets hit against the boards. When a slap shot is taken, you can't even see the puck. You just hear it hit the end boards or the back of the net. 
When the play is that close, it happens so fast, so furious, with such an intensity. And see, it was hard to see plays develop, but that didn't matter because the ferocity of the game was felt in your stomach because of the perspective that was offered by the seats that we were in. Now, the last game I attended happened to be a 7-5 victory for my Oilers here at the Saddle Dome. Sorry about that, Pastor Henry, but the Flames, it's the only team we can beat this year, so we'll take it. Um, but our tickets were way up in the press level section. So if you've never been in the press level section, basically when a WestJet flight comes over the Saddle Dome, you duck a little bit. That's where press level is. But here's the thing. I appreciated something about that perspective. It offered a different experience. The game wasn't as intense. The emotion wasn't felt as strong. And the intensity of the action wasn't right in your face. But it offered a view of the entire ice surface. The game looked a little slower. You could see the plays develop. You could see the coaching strategies, the positioning of players, the line matching, and so on. See, press level offered a different perspective than ice level. Both had their pros and cons, but they were different. Press level offered more of an aerial view of the game. Now, that, doesn't that describe a little bit of what it looks like at the end of a year? As we approach the new year, we often look back over the year that was and, and reflect, we reflect on the victories, the defeats, the joys, the battles, the memories. And looking back often reveals a different perspective than the one we had when we were in the trenches, so to speak. See, when we hit pause and we look back over the year that was, we can see things from a different perspective. We have more of an aerial view, more of a press-level view, a view that brings great understanding, a view that brings more clarity, a view that reveals a grander depth of what we experience throughout the year. See, the beauty of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is that we can have a different perspective in every and all situations as we engage in the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what is now true of us. There's a story I read recently that just really spoke to me about the importance of having a good news perspective. And it moved me, and I want to share that story with you this morning. And a guy named Jeff shares Alyssa's story. And this is how it went. He's such an idiot. He's doing it again, Alyssa said. What's he doing, one of the members of her group asked. He's doing what he always does. He's canceling last minute when it's his turn to pick up the kids for the weekend. And then when I try to talk to him about it, he intimidates and tries to threaten me. He scares me. And now I'm constantly thinking about how we're going to make it financially if he doesn't help us. Half the time, I don't even want the kids to be with him. But I know they need to see their father. She says, I don't even want to see him or talk to him. He's so intimidating. I, I just cannot keep doing this. Constantly worrying. She says, I can hardly sleep. And so when their marriage had come to an end, shortly after their marriage had ended, Alyssa, her house, was destroyed in a fire. And they lost everything. So she'd lost her marriage, and now she'd lost her home. And then she was introduced to a community of faith where Clay and Christy, Jeff states, 
new Christian and members of our missional community, asked if we'd be willing to help her out. See, they knew Alyssa through a mutual friend, and all their kids went to school together. And they just really realized, without a husband or without a home, it was clear that she needed the help of God's family. So Jeff says, we all pitched in. We bought groceries, we bought clothes, we brought supplies. And for a season, she even lived with one of the couples from our missional community. And then she started to hang out with her missional community and started learning about Jesus with us. Don't worry, one of the men in the group spoke up. We'll take care of him. We're not going to let him treat you like this, someone else chimed in. Alyssa, you cannot put up with this. you got to stand up to him. And if you want, we will. We won't just stand by and watch this happen to you. And Jeff says, the conversation continued like this for some time. He says, until I realized what was going on. And Jeff jumped in. He says, wait a minute. Just wait a minute. Let's hit pause. Time out. Time out. This isn't what Alyssa needs right now. This isn't the perspective she needs right now. She doesn't need us to make this more about her husband than it already is. He said, I knew much of her problem had to do with the fact that she had already allowed her husband to have too much influence over her. He had taken center stage in her life to the point where she was emotionally controlled by his every behavior. And in a sense, he had become her God. So Jeff went on to say, he says, all we're doing is affirming him as the problem. We're making the focus all about getting him to change. He says, sure, what he's doing is wrong, but we can't make this all about him. What if he never changes? Then Alyssa will continue to be a slave to his brokenness. We can't change him. Alyssa can't either. He says, only God can do that. See, he says, Alyssa needed us to direct her to God for help. He says, she needed something much better at the center of her life and attention. Someone who could truly set her free and change her from the inside out. So he said to her, we need to give Alyssa Jesus. Not our efforts to change her ex-husband. He says, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a conversation with him at some point. Or that we shouldn't step in to protect her. However, he said, let's start with Jesus first. So Jeff turned to Alyssa and he said to her, you need Jesus to help you overcome your fear. He's like, I believe you need Jesus because he wants to be the source of your security and love. And he said to her, in fact, you also need Jesus to enable you to forgive and to love your ex-husband. And Jeff says, I've seen this pattern play out over the years. He's like, I've even been guilty of myself, of stepping in and trying to fix the problem. He says, people share their struggles with every good intention we try to give good advice. We try to step in and be the solution ourselves. And he says, people do need answers. And they are in need of help. He says, but we fail to truly help them if we don't give them Jesus. He is the best and most powerful answer and help that they could ever receive. This is brilliant. See, Jeff recognized that Alyssa needed a good news perspective for her situation. He recognized she needed Jesus, and he offered her Jesus. Church, many of the first century followers of Christ were suffering, and they were being abused and persecuted for their, their faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. 
And beginning in Jerusalem, the persecutions uh, spread to the rest of the world wherever Christians gathered. And it climaxed when Rome determined to rid the empire of Christ once, those who would not bow to Caesar. And the apostle Peter, he knew this persecution firsthand. Beaten and jailed, Peter had been threatened often. He had seen fellow Christians die and the church scattered, but he knew Christ. And nothing could shake his confidence in our risen Lord. So Peter wrote the church scattered and suffering for the faith, giving them comfort and giving them hope. And he was urging them to continue to be loyal to Jesus. He wrote the church and he offered a good news perspective. See, he wrote these letters in a time when it was really difficult to be a follower of Jesus. He wrote these letters in a time when when Christians were not only being ostracized by their community, but many lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. See, Peter lived amongst the Roman believers in his last years on this earth, and he shared in the same hardships as they did. See, many theologians and historians believe that he wrote 2 Peter from his jail cell as he was awaiting his death at the hands of Emperor Nero. And again, what I love about Peter is that in the midst of these trials and these tribulations and these hardships, in the midst of knowing that his life was going to come to an end, because of his intimacy with Jesus, because of his confidence in Jesus, he wrote these two letters to the church, reminding them of who Jesus is, reminding them of what Jesus has done for us, and reminding them of what is now true of them, and reminding them how they are supposed to live in light of that truth. Peter offered a good news perspective in a time where it was very difficult to see good news if you were a follower of Christ. I wish we could read the entirety of of these two letters because they're just so rich. But for time this morning, I'm just going to focus on the beginning of the first letter because it, it, it paints this picture of an eternal hope and a good news perspective for us. But before we dive into the text, I just want to add a little bit more depth of the context that Peter and the Roman Christians were in. See, many theologians believe that Peter was in Rome and wrote his letters around the time that the city went up in flames in 64 AD. And when the city of Rome burned... The Romans believed that their emperor, Nero, had set the city on fire, probably because he had this incredible lust to build. And in order to build more, he had to destroy what already existed. And so the Romans were totally devastated. Their culture, in a sense, went down with the city. All the religious elements of their lives were destroyed. Their great temples, their shrines, and even their household items were, or idols were burned up. And, and this had great religious implications because it made them believe that their deities had been unable to deal with the inferno and were also victims of it. People were homeless, people were hopeless, and many had been killed. And the bitter resentment was so severe. So Nero realized he had to redirect that anger somewhere. And who do you think he chose as a scapegoat? Christians. 
And they were already hated because they associated with the Jews and because they were seen as being hostile to Roman culture. So it was an easy target for Nero. So he spread the word quickly that Christians had set fire to the city. And as a result, a vicious persecution against Christians began. And it soon spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Thus, the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit, wrote his letters to strengthen the church. See, he wanted to offer believers a good news perspective that was greater than the circumstances they were facing. And since the believers addressed were, were suffering, uh, escalating persecution, the purpose of his letter was to teach him how to live victoriously in the midst of that hostility. He's like, I don't want you to lose hope. I don't want you to become bitter. You need to trust the Lord and keep looking for a second coming. See, he wished to impress upon the leaders or on the readers that by living an obedient, victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually have a good news perspective and impact his or her hostile world. So he says to the church, church, look, there is a reason for hope. We have a new and eternal life in Jesus. And I love how Eugene Peterson captures this in the message in the opening lines of 1 Peter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 3. He says, what a God we have. And how fortunate we are to have him. This father of our master, Jesus. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life. And we have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. He's like, I know how great this makes you feel, even though you put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold, put in the fire, comes out proved pure Genuine faith put through this suffering comes out proved genuine. And when Jesus wraps all of this up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. He's like, you never saw him, yet you loved him. And you still don't see him, yet you trust him with laughter and singing. Because you kept on believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to. Total salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Peter's saying, I get it. I understand. I'm with you. I know there's hardships. I know there's pain. I know there's fear. But we have an amazing Father who gave everything for you. Jesus defeated death and the grave. And because of that, we have a new and eternal life in him. You have an eternal inheritance. You're protected by the power of God because of your faith. He's saying to the church, do not lose hope. Do not lose perspective. There's a bigger picture. You have a future. Peter reminded them how they joyfully accept the message of the good news when they first heard it. You never saw him, yet you love him. Peter's like, you're going to face trials. Yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to walk through hardships. But as you put your faith in Jesus, he's like, these hardships, they're going to refine you. Just like gold being put in the furnace. Gold is perishable, church. 
He's like, but your lives aren't. He's saying, stay the course. There's hope. He's like, I'm reminding you of a kingdom perspective. I'm reminding you of the good news. And as the text continues, Peter keeps writing. He says, because of this truth, because of this hope, this salvation that God has provided, I'm going to challenge you to live for him. I'm going to challenge you to represent him well in all situations and circumstances. And this is where we read this familiar passage in verse 16. He says, church, be holy. Because the Lord is holy. Be holy because I am holy. See, Peter needs the church to know that we have an awesome responsibility not only to live with a good news perspective, live not only to live in relationship with God through the completed work of Jesus, but we have to represent God with our lives. He's saying you got to be holy, church, because people need to be called higher. He's like, there's a lot of people in this world who do not know Jesus yet, and they need to see an example to follow. Go be that example. You got this. Jesus is with you. Follow him into people's lives. And Peter's so confident of this. Because speaking of Jesus, later in chapter 2, he writes these words starting in verse 4. And I'm going to read it from the NIV. He says to them, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And he says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And I love this part. He says this to the church then, but he says it to us now. Let this sink into your hearts today. But you, church, are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that beautiful, church? Doesn't that give you hope this morning? Jesus is the foundation of it all. And Peter reminds the reader, and he reminds us today, Jesus is the foundation of our lives. God is building his house. He's building his spiritual family, a family we are all welcome to be part of. And this family is built on an amazing foundational stone, this cornerstone, this stone from which a home is squared and built upon. And his name is Jesus. In the end, it's all about Jesus, church. It's all about who he is. It's all about what he has done. And now what is true of us in light of that. 
So Peter's saying, there's a hero for our story. He's saying, we have a rescuer. God implemented a restoration plan. Your Messiah has come just like the prophets had promised. He was rejected and crucified, but he rose victorious. He's our rock. He's our salvation. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. And he is our King. Peter says, because of this, because you put your faith in Jesus, because you've trusted the cornerstone, you will not stumble. You're going to be part of a spiritual house, this eternal home. He says, you're chosen. You're priesthood. You're family. Church, this is good news. This is a press-level perspective. This is an aerial view. Friends, we all face daily struggles and battles. Sometimes from enemies we can't even see. We hear lies and accusations. You know, we struggle with temptations and we're often deceived. We hear words that were spoken over us when we were younger, echoing in our hearts in ways that do not breed life to our souls. Some of us look at our present situations and we wish they were better. And many of us face uncertain futures that without God can cause us to lead lives of anxiety, worry, and fear. And we all need help because we can come up with plenty of reasons not to believe, not to hope, and not to trust in God's word and work for us. We need the gospel. We need a good news perspective. We need to know how to believe and to speak and live the truths of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in and into the everyday stuff of life. In other words, we need to know how to address the struggles of life and the everyday activities we engage in with what is true of Jesus, the truths of what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And as a result, what is true of us as we put our faith in him. The gospel has the power to affect everything in our lives. And we need to look to 2018 with a good news perspective. See, we have the ability and the opportunity to live into our identity as a royal priesthood each and every day. We have Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives. See, storms may come. You might lose a shutter or a shingle or a little bit of siding. But the thing is, the truth is, when our lives are built on Jesus, our foundation will never be shaken. Come on. Most of our days are spent at ice level. Things are coming at us fast. It's intense. Emotions are high. But I truly believe that we can be reminded of a press level perspective 
as we daily engage with God's word, as we daily engage with the living word, Jesus. See, the Bible from cover to cover offers us reminders of this good news. And as you look to 2018, do not forget who our cornerstone is, church. Don't forget that he's close. Don't forget that there's a throne in heaven and it's occupied. A ruler, our God, sits on it. And Jesus is at his right hand. We're his kids. He's for us. And he has the ultimate good news perspective. And he eagerly awaits to share that perspective with each and every one of us every day. Can you pray with me? Jesus, you are our rock, you're our cornerstone, and today we acknowledge that you are King, that you are Lord. And as 2017 comes to an end and we step into 2018, Lord, my prayer for this church is that we would understand who we are in you, Jesus. That we're a part of the spiritual family, that you are for us. And God, that we would also recognize the challenge Peter put before us to live for you. Because people need to see an example of Jesus. So God, I pray for every person in this room, their families, their circumstances, all that's happening in their lives. I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them in a real and meaningful way. God, that thing that they've been praying for for a while that needs breakthrough, I pray that breakthrough would come. That healing, that restoration would come in people's lives. I pray more and more in this coming year, we would all choose to draw close to you. That we would seek you for that good news perspective in every and all situations. Jesus, we love you. And we praise you. And we thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what is now true of us because of that. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm just going to invite you to stand as we close our time this morning. We're going to respond. I truly believe when you hear Revelation, it's good to take some time to respond. And Joy and Brian are going to lead us in a song we sang earlier, Cornerstone. And as they sing this, I just want you to just engage with the words. But more importantly, engage with the person it speaks of. And just ask God to speak to you in these next few moments before you head out of here. And just say, what are you saying to me, Lord? And what is it you want me to do about that? As I step into 2018, what practical faith step can I take to have that good news perspective? Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 